Amen. Hey, good morning. Merry Christmas. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't a chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of our community this morning. Uh, sometimes Pahonics doesn't exactly work well for me. And uh, I was reading the lyrics off that screen and, you know, singing the whole, you know, once clothed in shame now, or now robed in majesty. Totally saying that is now robbed in majesty. And April's like, that's, that's robed. And so it's like, all right. So that's, that's where I am mentally today. So who knows what's going to happen in this sermon. Uh, hey, look, one of the great ironies to me of Christmas season is that this is definitely a time of year where there's, uh, you know, there's a love, joy, hope, peace is definitely kind of at the forefront of the cultural conversation. I, I think just kind of at society at large, this time of year, people are at least trying to be a little bit more kind, trying to be a little bit nice, trying to be a more of a people of peace. But at the same time, the holiday season can be really, really stressful, right? I mean, there are family reunions that maybe you aren't exactly excited about going to. There are uh, office work parties that maybe are more forced that you have to go to. And then you always seems like you come across either distant relatives or friends that there seems like there's some unresolved conflict lingering. And man, it just all comes out over the holiday season. So what a time of year there should be, you know, like, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, oftentimes turns into like, you know, the office survival of the spittest or like passive aggressive conversations with family or just like an uneasy tension that's just in the air sometimes in these conversations. And so this notion of peace, of Jesus bringing to the world peace, like that's hopeful, but maybe for you it just like, it just seems like, man, that just seems distant and it seems unrealistic. But that is the hope that we have in the Christmas season, right? We have this hope of Jesus because in his love for us, he brings peace into this world, right? One of the, one of the famous prophecies about Jesus that, that we hear read around Christmas time comes from Isaiah. When he's speaking of the Christ, he says this in Isaiah 9, 6, For to us, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the one who's ushered in peace into this world, and he's established a way for that peace to do its redemptive work in our hearts and in our souls. But it begs the question, how? How does he do this? Because, you know, again, you look at the world and just kind of what we walk through, it's, so often it seems like peace is in short supply. So did he fail in this, or how did he accomplish this? Is it here and we've missed it? Um, you know, are, are we breaking this peace in the way that we live, in the way that we relate to him? Or what's our role in it? Are we called to be peacemakers with him? So in a world full of conflict, where we see stress and just turmoil in so many different ways, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace? And what does that mean for those who profess to follow him? Let's go back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is, is the text we read during our Advent reading. I think this chapter really is going to help us. So we're going to go to Ephesians 2. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to back up and get a, a few of the verses before we get to Ephesians 2.13, which is what we read together. But as you're making your way there, um, let, me, let me set this scene for us. Let me set, set up the text for us. Uh, the book of Y'all all right? Y'all all right? Y'all good? I know I do this from time to time, but it's just, it's just like, and I don't feel like it's on me, so I'm squarely putting this on you. And <laughs> so, like, there just seems to be a little bit weird. Like, I'm not getting, like, I, I don't know, I'll talk to, where's mom and dad? And <laughs> so, like, I'll talk to, so that's always my, my life to jump into. We good? We feeling all right? Okay. All right. Just preach. All right. Ephesians 2. 
Ephesians, Ephesians 2, what, where we are in this text, all right? This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major trade city, and with that, think melting pots. There's people from all over the world who are living in Ephesus. And so there's people in Ephesus who have a, a, a similar background to Paul. All right, so he's, he has a Jewish upbringing, and so they too have a Jewish upbringing. They've, they've been brought up worshiping uh, the one true God, knowing his word, walking in his word. So when you hear Jewish people in scripture, know that they are worshiping the one true God. But in Ephesus, there are also people who are Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. So that means their background is worshiping many false gods and goddesses if they chose to worship a deity at all. And, and so you have that mixture of people in the town of Ephesus and Paul goes there and he preaches the gospel and a church is planted and people respond to the hope of the gospel and this community of believers comes together that's comprised of both Jewish and Gentile and that's who makes up this church at Ephesus and so Paul's writing them a letter to just kind of help all of them deepen their understanding of who Christ is what he's done for them how he's called them to live and really how he's called them to function as a church and when he does this at the start of chapter 2 he's going to give us a description He's going to teach us how Christ has brokered the peace for us, how he's established and created peace between a fallen and sinful humanity and a holy and righteous God. And this is where we jump in the text. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, at, uh, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we'll stop there because that's some hard teaching that Paul's just given, right? Like he's describing who we are or who we were before Jesus. And he says we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins. We were following the ways of this world rather than the ways of the Lord. And when we do that, we are disobedient to him. That is rebellion against the most high God. And the punishment for that rebellion, the punishment for that sin is death. That is the natural consequence of our sin, of all the times we've broken the peace in our relationship with God. When we, sin our, when we sin against him, we bring ourselves into conflict with him. And like everyone, and this is, I mean, Paul says it all throughout, like the rest, right? Like everyone else, this is the state of humanity, right? Like everyone, we are deserving the wrath of God for that conflict. For that conflict. And he, he's hammering this point home about how this is who we, we are before Christ. This is who we were before, uh, this is who we are if we haven't responded to Christ. This is who we were before Jesus. Because he's helping the reader is helping you and, I, you and I to know that this is the state of everyone, right? We've either been there or are there currently. So we cannot be self-righteous. We cannot be arrogant. We cannot be spiritually proud, thinking that somehow we're better than anybody else, somehow that we deserve a different type of response from the Lord. But no, we've sinned against him, and this is what is due to us. And so again, it's a hard teaching, right? Dead in our sins, we deserve the wrath of God. And so like if we call the gospel good news, this is the bad news that precedes it, right? This is, this is the, the depiction, this is the description of the state that we, are, that we were in, or, or maybe that we are in. Because honestly, this is descriptive of where some of you are now, right? This is the description of where you are in your relationship with the Lord. You've broken the peace against Him, and, and, and you're, you're still in your sin. And with that, this is a description of kind of your relationship to God. 
before Christ, if you've not trusted him, it's that description. But there's also good news in this, that Paul's not done writing. He doesn't like finish the thought here. He continues because he's going to describe the peacemaking work that Jesus has done, that the Prince of Peace has done on our behalf. And this is where we pick back up the text. We're going to go four through nine here. But because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." And so there's the good news, right? There's gospel in there. And so maybe you've heard this a thousand times. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves time and time and time again. It is a basic, that it's basics of the faith that we need to always preach and always be reminded of. And here Paul is, is telling us once again that because of God's love and mercy for us, he sends his son Jesus, right? The gift of Christmas to be the one to save us from our transgressions, that we are made alive in him. In another one of his letters, Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul talks a bit about how it happens. He says, we know we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. So the punishment of our sins, right? The punishment of our sins, you know, deserving the wrath of God that's been carried out in and on Jesus. The wrath of God due to our sins has been absolved with his sacrificial work, with the crucified Christ whom we have been crucified with. But this is also how we see the love of God in that he takes that punishment onto himself, took that consequence onto himself. But it doesn't just stop there. Now that he takes the punishment onto us, now he makes us alive. We're made alive with Christ. We're given life back. And if that wasn't enough, not only are we saved from our sin, not only are we made alive with Christ, but then Paul talks about how God views us. And he views us as though we are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. That that's how we are, and that, 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 that's how God views us, that this is what he's done for us. He's saved us, he's made us alive, seated with Christ now. And the question that we should ask then is why? Why on earth would he do such a thing? Well, it shows our, our presence with him and in such a place for all eternity speaks to the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, right? That we go from dead in our transgressions, enemies uh, against the Lord, to now seated with him. Do you, do you, like Paul's trying to help us grasp this degree of rescue, how complete this restoration has been, right? That we go from conflict with the Lord, set against him, set against his nature. We go from deserving his wrath, deserving his judgment uh, of our sin with due and righteous punishment, to now being seated with his one and only begotten son who is sinless and perfect. We are counted as righteous with him. And all of that is due to the grace that God gives. It's due to the grace that God gives, and it's applied to our lives through faith. And so if you're here, and if the description of your relationship with the Lord was you were in your sins, dead in your sins, knew nothing of Christ, the good news here is that now that peace can be made by faith in Christ, who he is and what he's done. It brings about this peacemaking work in your life. We don't work for it, we don't earn it, we don't somehow prove ourselves worthy of this gift, worthy of this act. It is simply the work that Christ has done on the cross on your behalf. And when we place our faith in him, it's applied to our lives and it's applied to our souls. We are no longer in conflict with the Lord, but now through Jesus and his sacrificial act, peace has been established in our relationship between ourselves and a holy and righteous God. It's one way, one 
life-giving, hope-giving, joy-inducing way that Jesus is our Prince of Peace. But Paul doesn't stop there because the redemptive work of Christ doesn't stop there in our lives either. Now that this peace has been made in our relationship with, with the Lord, now that this, that portion of the redemptive work has taken place, Paul continues to reveal to us our created purpose. All right? I know it's a big statement, but it's in the text. And Paul tells us why we were created and what we were made for, and it's in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So again, this is helping us grasp this measure of redemption, right? Not like dead in sin, deserving the wrath of God, but now like we're not just saved, with, saved by Christ, we're not just seated with Christ, now we're also called to serve alongside Christ in the great redemptive work and all the peacemaking acts he's continued to doing in this world. You see, we don't work for our salvation. We don't earn our salvation, but once we experience that great exchange, once our sins are given to Christ and his righteousness is given in return, then we pick up the work that he lovingly created in advance for us to do. And we put ourselves to, 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 to work in it, right? We pick up, we put our hand to the plow and start to work. It's that time where we embrace our created purpose and we do that by putting on display the works of the kingdom of God. And so yes, emphatically yes, in this way we are called to be peacemakers alongside Christ, the Prince of Peace. Turns out the, the Christians in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, is going to have a tangible way to be able to live this out and to be able to demonstrate it within their church. Because remember, there's Jews and Gentiles within this, within this body of Christ. And those were, those were two groups of people that before Jesus did not mix. There was open hostility. It was racial, ethnic, and religious tension between Jews and between the Gentiles. The Jewish people, remember, they, they believed and they were part of the promise that God had made. God had promised to bless them so they can turn bless all the nations. And so the Jewish people, when, when they uh, hear the, 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 these works of Christ, like they knew God was up to something in and through their people, right? So when Jesus, the Messiah, comes into the world through the nation of Israel... Many of the first followers of Jesus were Jewish because they recognized that for what it was, God fulfilling his promise to them. And so they gave their yes to Jesus, and they began to follow him, and they were many of the first, first Christians in that early church. And so they, they're, they're in the church, but then the Gentiles, right, they're outside of that promise. They didn't have the, the background or, or the history of growing up, knowing, knowing the Lord or knowing, knowing, his, knowing his words or knowing his commands. They were outside of that promise. They, you know, worshiped many false gods and goddesses. And, and really at that time, they probably would be okay with being outside the promise because, again, they didn't even believe in one true God. And, 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 yet, and yet they hear of Jesus and they put their hope and their faith and their trust in him. And, the, and then the Gentiles, they too are brought into the church. And you've got these two groups coming together that had such open hostility beforehand. The Jewish people, oftentimes, or, or many of the Jewish people would slip into a bit of arrogance or spiritual pride, thinking we're part of the promise and the Gentiles are not, so they deserve whatever wrath, whatever wrath and judgment they receive. And, and the Gentiles, oftentimes, they would be the majority culture, or they'd be the culture that has the military might or the power might or the economic might, and so they would oftentimes oppress or marginalize the Jewish people, and so they just hated each other. And then the redemptive work of Christ begins to happen. And the Jewish people find their hope in Jesus. And the Gentile people find their hope in Jesus. And now both these people find themselves in the same church, being preached the same gospel, being called to live out the same faith. And they have an opportunity. They have an opportunity. They have an opportunity 
to preach with their word and action the peacemaking effect of the gospel. And that's where Paul starts to help them see this. Previously, they were two different people groups. You know, the Gentiles believing they are far from God and Jewish people with their laws and commands believing that they had an inside track. Paul teaches them, no, 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 now you are one. You are one people redeemed and restored by Jesus. Let's pick back up the text, verse 11, and we'll take it all the way through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcisions, which is done in the body but by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So this is the word to the Gentiles, right? But now in Christ Jesus you were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups, that's Jews and Gentiles, one, and who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, that's the Gentile, and peace to those who are near, the Jewish people. For through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So what does all this mean? Verse 19, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So if you lost me in that, if you, if you lost it in the text, what Paul is doing there is he is leveling the playing field. He's helping them all see what Christ has done to make a way for peace. For, for the Gentile, those who were far away, Jesus brought them close. For the Jewish people who felt like they had the inside track with all their commands and all their laws, he's like, look, Jesus fulfilled those, all of those for you. Why? To create for himself one new humanity out of the two. To reconcile us to God through his cross and put to, get, put, and, and put to death that which separates, right? Jesus wanting to make for himself one body, one church, one people. And when these two groups are coming together, it's going to demonstrate to the whole world how the gospel destroys hostilities. It destroys barriers, destroys all that which sows division and conflict and makes a way for peace and wholeness and unity. No longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, members of God's household. And so if you're seeing how Paul is stacking this up and how he's explaining it to them, and I said this was a tangible way that they could live it out some 2,000 years ago, this is going to impact how you and I live this out here today because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, right, brings about peace in our relationship with the Lord. And if we let it, that good work, the gospel, can continue to lead us to bring about peace in our, own, in our relationships with others. How? We preach the gospel to ourselves again and again and again, Right? We, were all, we see that we're all sinners in need of grace and mercy. We're all fallen in need of that mercy. We're all broken in need of restoration. We're all trying to help one another get home, right? So we cannot claim superiority. We cannot claim superiority over another because all are in need for grace and mercy of Jesus. And that should, that should remove dividing walls, remove barriers of hostility from one another because we see how broken and jacked up we are and how much we need Christ's work in our lives. And so we see that the family of Christ is held together by him and him alone. 
And then once more, if we take it the next step, which we should, if we see how much grace and mercy that has been given to us that we require, then we can in turn give that grace and mercy to those who've sinned against us. Not in, uh, in like letting them off the hook, such a thing, but in the same way that Christ gives grace and mercy to us. To lead us to confession, to lead us to repentance. And in that way, we are bringing peace to that relationship. In that way, we are joining Christ in the peacemaking work that he's doing in the hearts and lives of people one heart at a time. And we do that not only by proclaiming the hope of the gospel, which we should, not not only by speaking of its transforming effect on our own lives, which absolutely we should as well, but we do that by living this out, by showing us out, by, by, by being a people who give the grace we have received. By being a people who show the mercy that, that, we have, that we have experienced. By being a people who love others the way that Christ has loved us. It's a way where absolutely we are called to be peacemakers following the Prince of Peace. So all of this leads to the one question that I'm going to ask you. What is a tangible way that you can live this out this Christmas season? For, for, for some of you. If, if you found this, the start of Ephesians 2 kind of describing your relationship to, to, to the Lord, like that's where you are currently. For some of you, the first step might be to stop living in conflict with the Lord and accept the gift of peace through Christ Jesus. Maybe you've lived your whole life trying to either be your own savior, savior and, and earn Christ's forgiveness and earn the Lord's forgiveness. Or maybe you've lived your whole life as thinking, I don't really need a savior because I'm not perfect, but I'm, overall I'm a, you know, I feel like I'm a good person. Um, I just try to go through life trying to do no harm to other people, right? I just try to be a basic good person, okay? Like that's, I'm, I'm glad that's an approach to life, but Ephesians 2 has just told us the true state of ourselves, right? It's revealed us the true state of our lives. No matter what our best efforts, we sin, and when we sin, we rebel against the Lord. And, and that rebellion has its consequences. That rebellion is, is, has our consequences, and we've set ourselves against him. For you to be at peace in your relationship with God this Christmas by faith, trust in Christ's complete and total work for you on the cross. And you'll experience that great exchange, right? Your sinfulness will be given to him. His righteousness will be given in return. And I do believe that is a tangible way that you can experience the peace of Christ this Christmas season. Stop living as though you don't need a Savior. Stop living as though you're trying to be your own. And simply trust in the one who in love came for you. And came for me. That's one way. That's one way that you can know that you've been made alive in Christ and experienced the Prince of Peace. Still, for others, another way is I've experienced that Christ. I know uh, I've experienced that peace. I know that the relationship that I have with the Lord. Still, another might be as He is the Prince of Peace. As He's the one who's established that in our lives. Maybe the way that you need to to act on this is to accept your role as peacemaker in this world. And, 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 and so ask yourself the question then, are there areas of conflict in your life, whether it be with friends, family, loved ones, where you need to be the one to take the first step to initiate the reconciliation, where you need to be the one to take the first step to initiate maybe restoration and redemption in that relationship? Maybe it's not conflict in that way where it's like interpersonal conflict. Maybe there's a loved one in your life that you know is just going through a difficult time. Maybe it's sickness, or maybe it's loss of a job, or maybe it's just loneliness. And, and like you see them, and you know that they are not at peace with themselves or with the world around them. So what would it look like for you to enter into their situation, to take their situation on as your own, maybe to love them as, as a neighbor and find ways to bring some measure of peace into their lives? You see, when we commit ourselves to these works, which remember God prepared in advance for us to do, 
we're putting on display the hope of the kingdom of God, and we show ourselves to be peacemakers who are following the Prince of Peace. So just how different, how different would this Christmas season look and even feel if we accepted this truth of who Jesus is as our Prince of Peace? Like, it's not going to magically make the stress and conflict of the holidays go away, but I do believe it will help us go through a, a, a season where you see some conflict and maybe see people who are just desperate to find peace or some source of peace and realize, hey, maybe, just maybe, God's placed and called us to be ones to help others know the peace that he brings, right? So know this, and we, we've, this kind of been the, the theme of the whole morning about God's complete and total redemptive work from resurrecting to all of it, right? When Jesus came into this world, he initiated that great redemptive act where one day he's going to completely and ultimately eradicate all that is broken and sinful and sad, all right? One day that is coming, but until then, that reversal is happening one heart and soul at a time as people come to find their peace in Christ and as people accept their roles to be peacemakers alongside him. So let this Christmas season, let this Christmas season be the time where you first and foremost trust in the Prince of Peace and then follow him and the work that he is doing in this world. And I believe that's a way that we join him in this redemptive peacemaking acts that he's doing, where he's mending the broken, shining a light into the darkness, and bringing peace into a world that is full of conflict and brokenness. Let me pray for us. God, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you that you've established a way for peace to happen between uh, our fallen sinful selves and, and you and your holiness and your righteousness. And God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift that he is, that he made a way for our sins to be taken, for forgiveness to be granted, and for us to be brought into your family. And so, God, we thank you for the peace that you've offered and the gift of peace that we have in your son. God, I pray that we would see that transformative effect of your grace and mercy in our lives. And God, I pray that we would express it in our relationships with others. So that at every turn, Lord God, we are following your lead and being uh, peacemakers, called alongside to engage the work that you're doing in this world. So that at every turn, God, we, are, we can point people back to the hope of your gospel, to the power of your gospel, and the ways that you have ushered in and are continuing to bring to this world a peace that passes all understanding. God, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.